Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got two guys who've known each other for decades and who have a popular podcast, a post-hardcore band, and a new novel between them, Jeff Rickley and Jonah Bayer. Now, Jeff Rickley is best known as the singer of the band Thursday, whose 2001 album Full Collapse is rightly considered a touchstone in the post-hardcore screamo genre. That band had a full and varied existence, creating an impressive catalog that they still occasionally tour on. Rickley has also been part of other wild and woolly outfits. He stood in for the singer of legendary vampire hardcore band Ink and Dagger for a tour after their singer passed away. You'll hear about that in this conversation. But most recently, Rickley switched his focus to writing his first novel, which just came out. Someone Who Isn't Me is most definitely not a memoir, though it is slightly more than loosely based on Rickley's experience in being in a band, becoming addicted to heroin, and finding a path to treatment. The other half of this conversation is an old friend and bandmate of Rickley's, Jonah Bayer. Bayer and Rickley were part of the mysterious supergroup United Nations, which put out a bunch of music while keeping most of their identities secret. There's a small but powerful United Nations catalog out there if you're into confrontational, mysterious hardcore. Bayer is also a journalist and recently started working as a mental health clinician, which maybe makes him the perfect guy to chat with Rickley about this book. Oh, and Bayer also hosts a really fun podcast with his sister Vanessa Bayer of Saturday Night Live fame called How Did We Get Weird that just launched its third season. Definitely check it out. In this chat, Bayer gets deep with Rickley about someone who isn't me, diving into the odd structure of the book, whether it made sense to fictionalize his friends, and how to dramatize a psychedelic trip. The two also talk about how pharma bro Martin Shkreli fits into Rickley's story, how Ink and Dagger deserves more recognition, and about a Kurt Cobain dream that Rickley once had. Enjoy. I got a boba tea. Oh, nice. And now I'm like, this is going to be a problem because I have to chew the boba. You can just chew like while I'm talking. That's what I'm going to try and do. But I was like, oh, no, there's so many juicy bobas in here. I ordered it and was like, I can get it before the podcast starts. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, let's see. Jonah, how long have we known each other? I actually know exactly how long we've known each other because we met on the 2002 Warp Tour. So that's 21 years. 21 years because I graduated and the summer after I graduated from college, I got hired by Turner Press to work on the Warp Tour because Thursday was on that. Was that the first Warp Tour you guys were on? We had done a couple dates on the 2001, but like very much as a, you know, just like those weird bands they let have a few shows or whatever. We were one of those. Although I will say that like we kind of we kind of destroyed the small stage that they put us on, which was a lot of fun back then. And then, yeah, ended up on the whole thing that year yeah so yeah so 21 years so i'd like almost pretty much like half our lives i remember meeting you then as a writer you were a writer and you were on the bus with a young woman who i ended up marrying and so like i was always you know coming by your bus to see both you and her yeah the sponsor buses yeah that was serious but yeah and so yeah then you know you you worked with my previous band, The Love Kill, and then obviously we've been mm-hmm. playing music together as United Nations. And so, yeah, yeah, it's been a lot. A long and storied friendship. That is, I think, is a good segue into this this book because it was so, I think it's such an incredible book. I, I you know, I'm almost done with reading it the second time. And Oh, shoot, that's nice. Huh? Yeah. Well, you know what's really <laughs> interesting is the second time through it, I picked up a lot more on the humor. Like, uh-huh. 
obviously it's dealing with very serious content and it's, you know, a very literary work, but there are a lot of really funny moments in it that maybe I didn't pick up on the first time. Oh, good. Yeah, everybody should read it twice, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, quite a bit of it's meant to be funny, and I I guess it is, some of it is from such a dark point of view that I guess it's easy to miss the first time. One thing that made me really laugh was there's sort of a scene where you're watching your partner and you're talking about it and you're talking about how you're like hiding behind these garbage cans and it's sort of this self-deprecating view of yourself but it's it's just I don't know the way it's worded it's just there are a lot of moments and a lot of moments of the dialogue with other characters that are really really funny I think especially in that first third where he's kind of like walking around the neighborhood and like talking to co-workers and stuff like a lot of that is sort of I, I thought a lot about the archetypal sort of like the character like the Don Quixote narrative where it's like the one guy doesn't realize how the rest of the world sees him. And I thought I could really have some fun with that. You know what I mean? Like a character who's like so strung out, he doesn't really sort of understand that he's not like the hero in his own quest. He's sort of like a fool. Yeah. And it feels, you know, to me, like this idea of identity, you know, the true self versus the shadow self. And obviously someone who isn't me, like that really seems like a really major theme of the book, even with Thursday, like, you know, tomorrow I'll be you or something like that. It seems like this concept of identity keeps coming up. Yeah, it's always been like a really big part of my work. And like, I think when you say identity, people might think like it's like a, like a more of like a political identity politic type of a thing. But it's more of like, who are we to ourselves? Um, who Who is the projection that we see when we imagine ourselves versus the other layers of us that are underneath the base layers and the, you know, the uh, animal self and the ego and the id and all that kind of stuff, layer upon layer upon layer. Like even the cover art of the book kind of has this like fractured view of a face that's layered on top of itself a bunch of times. Uh, And when I saw the cover, I was like, that's it. And yeah, that's like a just, it is a big part of a lot of my songs. You know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my brother, the failure, the Thursday song is like about these two brothers that are, it becomes increasingly likely as the song goes on that both of them are the same person. I've just always found fascinating, you know, the light side, the dark side, the like all of it complicating each other. And this book was sort of like the, like, let's explode that a million times. I love that cover of the Black Flag album where he's like punching the mirror and it's like all like so many different fragments of the same face. There was like a lot of that kind of work going on in the book, you know what I mean? It's like, let's explode like what a self is and view it from all these different angles. Which also at times, I'm sure you can imagine this, uh, when you're inside it and working on it, I would think like, oh my God, like how far up my own ass am I crawling? It started to feel a little scary at times because I thought, am I going the wrong direction really far? You know what I mean? Instead of just (laughs) like a little detour into the wrong direction, is this, like, did I take the one path and decide I'm going to live on it forever? And that was the wrong path. But I, I think that the reaction that I've gotten, that just hasn't been an issue. It's sort of just been a page turner for most people where they can sort of identify with or laugh at, you know, these different parts of the character's psyche. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds to me like, obviously, without giving anything away, like the experience of Ibogaine or doing, you know, this intense kind of psychedelic as a treatment for addiction, a lot of it is sort of breaking down this idea of self and kind of bringing down those walls. I mean, what was it like for you, I guess, to write about it? Because it seems like those kind of experiences are so kind of affirm, like fleeting, like hard to articulate the experience. And I think you did a really good job of that here. Like, I felt like I understood what you were going through, even though it seems like almost such an abstract experience. 
Yeah, that's uh, that was a huge like part of the book was figuring out the answer to that problem. You know, first of all, at some point I thought, oh no, like you're not supposed to tell people your dreams. And I've got a hundred pages in the center of the book that's all dreams. Like this is like, that was another one of those ones. Like, am I really going the wrong direction? Like I'm breaking a whole lot of conventional rules right now. And I had this strong feeling that it was working anyway. It was like, maybe these are some rules I got to break right now. But it still was a concern. You know, when I'm spending five years making the book, like you spend five years and get it that wrong. It's like, it's a big swing and a miss. You know what I mean? That's, a, that's like a chunk of your life right there, five years. So yeah, it was really tough to figure out exactly how to go about dramatizing the trip. And uh, it started out much more true to the experience, which was more chaotic, less focused, a lot more experimental that like the writing itself tried to embody the experimental ex experience of being in the trip. And I thought that that was too, that was a little too much. You know, my agent even said to me, hey, if you want to write a super experimental prosy type book that I can sell to a really small press and we'll, 500, 600 copies of it will sell, you know, let's, we can do that. You just let me know that that's what you want. And I sort of thought about it for a while. I was like, that's not what I want. I want to figure out how to write about this where people can follow. You know, they can come inside and maybe it won't be exactly true to the experience that I had, but it'll it'll be something that they can grab onto and understand. You know, the little bit of experimentation in that section, you know, the the names of the places that come at you pretty fast and some of the stuff like that, I think is close enough to give you like a little bit of the flavor of what it was actually like without it being like, oh God, I have to do this now. You know what I mean? Like, sure. like these people who are reading it, they don't have to get sober. Like, it's like, they don't have to go through the trials and tribulations. They can just read a story. And that was something that I, I thought, okay, how do I do that? How do I give it a little flavor without, you know, without like dragging people down into the mud with me? And that was something that like, I was so lucky that all the people in my life knew my project. And whenever they'd see anything that they thought was interesting about psychedelics or, you know, other writers who had tried to dramatize it, they would send it to me. And I could see like, okay, that was, okay, that was Tao Lin's idea of what a trip is. It's like pretty fragmented. There's like text all over the page in different places. Okay, that's his approach. Okay, this is how Michael Pollan tried to make a trip sound, you know, and he wrote an article about the, the crafting of the trip in the Times. And I was like, okay, that's interesting too. I read just a bunch of surreal novels and tried to understand like what that project was. And I thought, you know, surrealism could become psychedelia. There's a hallucination section in the middle of the book. And that's, you know, the middle third of the book. And that itself is split into three sections. And the first section is sort of like a band memoir. And the second section is kind of like my reimagining of Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. And so there's like, you know what I mean? There's different styles, there's different things going on. And I use different methods to try and keep these experiences fun and something that would like, in some ways, like delight a reader to go through, you know, this little trip, this little idea and vintage nods to the classics and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Um, I, I have like, out of all my friends who are writers, there's like different sentences in the book that I'm like, that's my Chelsea Hudson tribute sentence. That's my Darcy Wilder tribute sentence. I was around for a lot of this stuff, but had a totally different perspective on it. So it's like, you know, there's this really major kind of point this night you get mugged. And it's like, I remember going to Lodge and us watching you on the news being interviewed about getting mugged that night. And so, and then all of these things sort of happened that I'm not 
privy to. And then, you know, I had moments where I'm like, why is Jeff in the bathroom so long? But like, have no idea about all of this stuff. (laughs) I was reading other like heroin books and stuff. And I was like, man, why aren't they on their cell phones the whole time? Like, Mm -hmm. you got to get your drug dealer. Like, so you got to spend a lot of time on your cell phone. And like, why aren't they always in the bathroom? Because I'm like constantly in the bathroom trying to use these drugs. You know what I mean? And that's like, You know, obviously people have different things that they want to talk about in their book. Like not everybody wants like a lot of their book to go on in the bathroom, you know. But for me, it was just such a like, no, that's not what it's like. It's like this. You're on your cell phone waiting for your dealer and you're like getting the last of your drugs out in the bathroom. And that's like what it's like, you know. Well, yeah. And I think like the setting of the book takes place in like Waynesburg, Greenpoint area. And it's like through these experiences, you're sort of tapped into this different side of the city. And I think that kind of figures into your identity too, right? Like you're kind of these two different people in a way. Yeah, and it's like the different sides of the neighborhood. You right. You know what I mean? Because like both of these neighborhoods are quite well regarded as like expensive, like trendy neighborhoods or whatever. And then there's also the side where like, it's like I know every block that you can buy heroin in like these two really expensive neighborhoods. And like I bought heroin next to like super fancy people who are like make much more money than me sure. and and people who are like a lot more desperate than me and i think you know it's complicated by the fact that like uh you know the people that are often like in the position where they're having to sell the drugs are in families that have lived in the neighborhood for a long time and you see the effects of you know gentrification and all these like class struggles and stuff like that happening and when you're closer to that side of things where you're closer to the street and you're like seeing through different ways to make money and stuff like that, it it kind of brings into relief that, you know, in the daylight, you're not seeing that stuff. It made me think about class and race and gentrification and neighborhoods differently, too. You know what I mean? Just just, you know, I mean, it's a lot of my drug dealers like I they were like my friends. Like I would want to talk to them. We would like talk about music and stuff. And it's just like. You know, there's a there's a part later on with like the drug dealer's brother. And it's like these, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think both drug use and recovery have this way of breaking through those boundaries a little more. Like in a lot of the meetings that I go to, it'll be like a banker who's like talking about his bottom. It's like I almost lost my job, you know, and then the guy next to him is like, yeah, I was in jail for 20 years. So uh, but, you know, here we all are in this meeting together. <laughs> but we've, you know, faced different consequences for being different demographic groups, you know. So it's like there's a lot of stuff complicated in there. And I didn't want to put that into the book too heavy handedly. I just just wanted to sort of acknowledge that it was there a little bit and sort of pass through those things. What about the decision, you know, to use people's real names? Like, obviously, you know, we know like Norman or Steve or Liza. I mean, did you think about like, you know, using aliases or transparent? Like, because it it feels to me, it feels very kind of authentic. You're actually naming these people, describing them even someone like Martin Shkreli or something, what was the decision like to use people's actual names? Yeah, it was a tough one, to be honest. Like, I'm not famous, but to a certain extent, I have had a public-facing profile or whatever, you know what I mean? And to the extent that anybody who reads it would see, like, fake names, they'd be like, so that fucking band, whatever it's called, that's Thursday, obviously. Right. And the, the fucking tall guitar player with the long hair is obviously Tom, you know? So at what point is it like more insulting to make uh, a caricature out of their characters than it is to sort of acknowledge that like, these are all the names, but this is fictional and these people are not really like that. Like if you see in the, if you see in the acknowledgements, there's sort of a like tacit, like 
I flipped genders on characters, even names like like I had like, you know, I had a cut. I like literally had to cut Andrew out of the book because I like everybody agreed there were just too many white guys with normal names in my book. It was impossible to tell them apart. And I made a joke out of it in the Tim, Tom and Tucker section. But like literally like I even thought about cutting Tim because I was just like, I just don't know if I can like this book isn't about the band. And if I try and dramatize each of these characters, they seem flatter and flatter. And like the pitch doctor in the studio section is our dearly departed friend, Tim Gillis, who um, was Thursday's first mix engineer and the owner of the studio and all that stuff. And I just like, I didn't want another male character. So I thought I would kind of base it half on him and half on his ex-wife, who I always thought was like a great character, a very colorful person. And, you know, it's that kind of thing where it's just like, yeah, this stuff is all real, but it's not all like real the way that you're thinking of real. It's like, maybe I changed who that character is. Maybe I had one, maybe I had Tom saying all the stuff that Steve said in this time. Maybe I put, you know, five months worth of tension into like two hours. I could tell the story without worrying about the facts. No, I understand. And, you know, another kind of major part of the book to me is is Ink and Dagger. And obviously Don and Sean and that band you know, is mentioned so many times in the book. And why was, you know, people might not know who this band is, right? If they're mm-hmm. younger, if they weren't around in the 2000s. But why, could you explain a little bit about kind of their role kind of in the book and, and why that was important for you to integrate? Because I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, so far this press tour has also like almost doubled as a like ink and dagger appreciation tour where it's like people should know this band. Like this band absolutely is very sort of unfairly not, like canonized in the way, like people love them and respect them, but they're not as well known as a lot of the classic bands that of the era. And they were like the best one of them all. So I'm just like, I'm always happy to go extra to bat. I was just on How Long Gone and and like we, you know, me and me and them jeans were talking about like how fucking amazing Ink and Dagger are, you know. And um so, you know, that's that's a happy side effect of, you know, a byproduct of the book, but really the importance of why so much was in there about Ink and Dagger. It had a lot to do with this like doubling character that we had, you know, in some ways having stepped in to the role that Sean uh, left in Ink and Dagger when, when he died, having stepped in during the reunions and sang, I constantly felt like I was doubling somebody who, uh, you know, who was dead and was, was gone and and that I was also like doing you know, th- there was no reason why I wasn't dead yet. And so it started to function in that same way as like the Schrodinger's cat, where it's like, I felt like both alive and dead during those times when I was with Ink and Dagger. And I thought, because Don was such an important part of, of like, you know, he was the one who told me about Ibogaine and stuff. And he's also just such an interesting esoteric character. He has to be in the book, no doubt. And while we're at it, like, just like, they're just such a great band. And they they have such a dark energy that I just really thought that like the tone that they added to the book by being a big part of it was like a very like it like is it was like an aesthetic coloring device. I could just kind of like the whole book changes because they're such a presence in the book. And also for me and for Tom from Thursday, like we were literally at an Ink and Dagger show being like, this is we could do something like this. We could do something that's like it feels like physical, like you're getting hit with like some dark energy. It's not like just being at a show and watching a band play. It's like a totally immersive experience of like, I'm a little bit scared. You know what I mean? Like I'm at a hardcore show and I think something bad might happen. And like, I like, I always liked that about them. It was not safe.
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. There's so many moments about you kind of being on stage performing and sort of like the rush of energy, the sound, like I feel like that's so described in such a sensory way, really paralleled with sort of the drug experiences. Very early on, I knew that I wanted to write some great music passages, you know, some passages that were like a different kind of writing about being on stage, you know, but I didn't know exactly how I would get to a different place than other people had been. So I kind of thought that if I put it in in the hallucinations, then I could start building, like basically like the hallucinations come halfway through the book, you know? And so a lot of the work that I had to do to get the hallucinations to hit right was in setting up like images, sounds, ideas that I could then sort of have those ideas explode all at once at the moment that the hallucinations hit. And so like a lot of what's going on on stage it feels a lot more freighted with like weight and there's images that have been used over and over in the book that finally like come to pass when the band is actually playing. I wanted there to be so much tension building up to the band finally playing. And I wanted that band playing to also be like this explosion of blood kind of, you know what I mean? This like this sort of like, it's all happening at once. Like now he's tripping, now the band's playing. Now like the sound is overwhelming. There's too many people. I was trying to figure out how I could just how I could make a performance feel different. You can't just describe it better. You have to figure out a system for pushing more meaning into it. And I think that's really what I learned from this book was like when you have 300 pages, when you have 200 pages, you have to do a lot of work to like unwind certain punchlines in the right amount of time. Because if you start at the page before, then it's going to you know, you could get a little chuckle out of it or you could get like a little bit of an effect out of it. But if you slowly start winding it up 100 pages before and you crank it up, crank up the volume like the two pages right before it hits, then you can kind of unload like the meaning a lot heavier. Right. And that's the kind of work that I like really loved learning how to do. And I don't think I mastered it or anything. Like I read some books while I was making this that, oh my God, 
that like it's just like it was like a master class in how to do this. You know what I mean? Like like even just things that I never understood before, why there would be like unrelated scenes that had nothing to do with seemingly the whole book was almost like a pattern, like so that when you read it the second time in the plot, you'd be like, oh, this is hitting me hard now. I feel like you could have done a book where it's like kind of like these stories you've told for the last 20 years and in interviews over and over. Like, what was it like kind of not relying on that or editing that out? Was that liberating or what was that like? I could probably write like a, like a memoir, like just a conversational, like all these oral stories that I tell every night and have it be fun and have people kind of like it and think it's like funny and whatever. But I just like, I love novels. You know what I mean? I don't really read nonfiction. I don't really re- read memoirs, you know? So I was just like, look, if I'm going to get a shot to write a book, I'm going to write the kind of book that I've loved forever. I'm going to take a swing at it at least. And if I don't land there, fuck it, I tried. You know what I mean? I got my chance. Like, yeah, most people don't get a chance. Yeah. And something, you know, that is so fascinating about the book to me is this idea of time and how kind of nonlinear it is. And like, you know, you talk about how space is just compressed time and you're kind of jumping around a lot. I mean, how... Did you kind of have to chart that out or like, what was it like for you? Because it almost feels disorienting at points as a reader. And I mean that in like a really good way. So that was like probably the biggest challenge of the book was the way time works on this book. I wrote it in the first person present tense and it is a great device for the the hallucinations because you feel trapped in it you know there's no reflection there's no getting out it's just like it's all happening one thing after another you know you can't look back it's going 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 if you want to go to a different place you literally just have to break and then be in a new scene you can't have like a character inside his own hallucination imagining a memory that's it's too many layers of I don't know fuckery I don't know what you would call it you know what I mean it's it's too many Christopher Nolan inceptions you can't right I tried the book in every tense, like literally I rewrote every part in every different tense possible to see like, well, is this part better in this tense? Is this part better in this tense? And that's how I came up with the third book, the last, the final chapters being in the past tense was, you know, I have the therapist say, slow down, back up. And that was my device to get into the past tense so that I could have the whole book slow down. I could have the character be able to reflect on what he's been through. And that way, the whole like, onslaught of the first two sections of the book could slow down and and stop being so heavy. But yeah, we tried it every different way. And the thing that was the most difficult was like, well, if I can only go linear in one direction in the present tense with no memory, how do I tell people that the hallucinations are actually memories? So what I decided on was that I was going to instead talk about interior and exterior space. So that's like very early in the book, I'm talking about architecture, like the architecture of happiness. I'm talking about like the hidden basement in my apartment, like all these things that are, um, that maybe seem a little bit like kind of like, that's weird that he's fixated on architecture in the beginning. It's so that I could build uh, the difference between an inner life and an outer life in terms of a physical space. You know, and that becomes important so that when he goes into the hallucination, he closes his eyes and goes inside the inner world. And that way it's not him going back in time to a memory. It's like that's the distinction that I can make while everything's still in the present tense. So there's like a lot of world building that's kind of like 
hidden behind the scenes and that, you know, for the amount of people that I've talked to that have read the book in like two days, I know that they're probably not thinking about a lot, like, which is good. You don't want this work to be so obvious, but that they're like able to get through it and think about it. And it's like, it's making sense to them, which is, that's awesome. That's all I could hope for, you know. I really would love to see like a Darren Aronofsky like (laughs) version of this book. I feel like it would be so interesting to see like a visual representation. Is that something that's in your mind at all when you're writing or does that come in later? The visual representations in my mind, I drew maps for the book and the most helpful map was the map of Dante's Inferno. There's like a visually like drawn Renaissance depiction of the circles, the nine circles. And they're like, each one goes a little further into the the ground or whatever, or further down into hell or whatever it is. And that structure was very helpful for me like thinking about it in terms of like sections of three. So the whole book has three sections and then the hallucinations have three sections and then each of the hallucinations is actually can break them down three more times. So like all of it is kind of in that divine comedy, like trios of everything in the book. And I really did have to map it quite a bit because, you know, I had this idea of a structure that was, that was uh, nested rings. So it was like a, it was like a record you know, spirals in towards the center and then uh, children's maze, which goes further and further into the center and uh, tree rings, which go into the center and, you know, a chandelier that has different. So it was like all of this was like I was trying to map it in these concentric circles that got smaller and faster, smaller and faster until it hit the center. And then that was going to be the climax of the book. We have talked to a few people about the film rights. And um, one of them is like a guy who does work with Aronofsky and stuff. So it's it it is an interesting thing to, to wonder what it would be like, you know, it. I think it'd be really easy to get it super, super wrong. Sure. But also to a certain extent, it's like if it does ever leave my hands, you know, after the strike's done and this kind of stuff resumes, if it ever becomes like film or something, then, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I have to like say, hey, I wrote the book. That's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You guys have fun. Do yeah, yeah. do good. <laughs> well, it made me think about, you know, with the circles and the record, the United Nations, like music for changing parties and this, mm-hmm. you know, idea of having different endings to the record and us working on that with everyone. I mean, this seems like kind of another theme of sort of the work is like, you know, if the needle lands in a different groove, it changes the whole narrative. Yeah. And the kind of like Schrodinger's cat, like will they, won't they kind of thing where chance becomes like such an element, like an elementary particle of like the art itself. It's like, that's what defines it is that chance, that element of chance that gets introduced into it. And, you know, I mean, I think as much as I, I always believe that I'm doing something incredibly new and unique and original every time I embark on a project, like the things that I can't let go of are always with me. You know what I mean? Like the sort of the nagging questions about existence just manifest themselves in different ways. But, you know, I definitely, um, it's funny. I saw like a footage of one of our Vitus shows, uh, United Nations yesterday. And I was like, man. I bet we still got a whole lot of stuff left to say. You know what I mean? I bet we could do a lot more stuff if we wanted to. But on the, you know, by the same token, I'm like, man, it's like what a great little body of work we have. For sure. And it seems like that seems to have like a similar attitude, you know, for you towards Thursday, like not in the sense, obviously you, you're touring a lot with Thursday, but as far as like the body of work, it doesn't seem like that's something that's the priority sort of for you as far as like creation. Yeah, I mean, Thursday just has such a, such a huge complete body of work you know we have six albums and like eps and live albums and you know we have a ton of ton of shit like thursday has so much stuff and i'm not against like making more music with thursday you know what i mean like i would but i also don't feel like 
you know, 26 years in, like the world is waiting with bated breath to see what the new album is going to be like or something. It's like, no, yeah, if we if we come up with something cool, it'll come out. No doubt. You know what I mean? Like it will. But I also don't feel like I need to like squeeze out something that sucks just because like some crowd somewhere would want it. You know, maybe that's like the one real luxury that I get of being in like a band that's like a legacy band, but that also isn't so big that like it'll change the world if we put out a record. Like there's a certain leeway that we get at this point in our lives from that kind of stuff, you know, because like Thursday's discography is pretty uncompromising. You know what I mean? It's just like we went in the direction we gave it our all and each record has its own kind of little testament to what we were trying to do at the time. And I don't know, I'm proud of it all. You know what I mean? Like, I think like even probably our biggest diehard fans, there's still stuff to find that they haven't like explored yet, you know? Sure. And, you know, like you said before, you know, if they don't like it, they'll probably like it 10 years from now once mm. you're not touring on it. Mm-hmm. Story of our lives. <laughs> well, I'm curious, the stuff with Martin in the book, what, because it's sort of like you're almost having this conversation that that you're sort of working out this situation or trying to understand it. What was like sort of the decision to kind of bring that into the narrative? Was that like therapeutic for you or how did that kind of come into it, especially, you know, towards the end? No, no, I mean, I don't think it was therapeutic, really. I think there's some side of my brain that just like finds him very interesting. You know, there's it's it's so hard to talk about because it's such a charged subject. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. When somebody sort of like spectacularly becomes like a supervillain. And becomes like, you know, what they call the main character on Twitter or whatever. Then you kind of have to like have a uh, a take or whatever. Like you it, it pick a side or what you know, whatever. Which is, that's not so interesting to me. But the fact that like this is somebody that I knew a little bit as like a person. Right. You know, and a person who like I had seen do a bunch of altruistic things and who treated me very kindly and very fairly. Uh, when I had been in so many situations with business partners who didn't do that to see them sort of like, like literally overnight sort of change drastically and become like almost like a cartoon representation of like the bad guy for the public, the general public. Right. Uh, It's just something that kind of my psyche has not been able to let go of because, you know, I have, and and it's funny because like I've had different people say different things about Martin in the book. You know, I've had some people say like, it's amazing how he's like the personification of evil in the book. And I think like, Okay, that's interesting. That's not really how I meant him to come across. And then I had somebody else say, like, he comes across quite sympathetic in the book. And I think, like, okay, like, at one part, he's, like, swinging my guitar over his head and smashing it and, like, telling me my teeth are bad and all. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, right, right. Like, either of those takes on it are sort of like a weird, it's like not quite either of those things. It's just somebody that I was clearly thinking about. You know what I mean? And I don't really know, like, you know, good people can do bad things, bad people can do good things. Like, the book isn't trying to pass judgment on whether, like, Martin's a good or a bad person. That's not, that's not at all his point in the narrative. To that point, like, you know, even when you're talking about yourself in the book, you know, you have these kind of experiences of of thinking you're the devil, and then you're explaining it, Uh and you're saying, you know, I was a devil, but maybe I'm just like a scared little kid, you know? And I found that to be, like, really powerful, because it's like, this sort of idea of, like, duality or not being able to kind of categorize people as, like, good or bad i've been thinking a lot about the flattening of people into either good or bad yeah and that like if you do something bad then you're all bad and if you haven't been caught doing something bad then you're all good and you're righteous and you should cast the first stone and i get that there are like a lot of macro societal reasons why we're at that point you know like abuses run rampant for too long that's not good we got to do something about that like 
even if it's like a bulldozer to clear the path. You know what I mean? I get that. I do. Also, maybe something simpler, like there's too many fucking people and too many voices. And like, we can't keep track of all of them. Like, so anytime somebody does something wrong, it's like, let's just get them out of here and make room for somebody who has a better voice. You know what I mean? So I get that there are like factors at play, let's call them. You know what I mean? But I also think it's like a profoundly sad way for us to think about each other as human beings. I'm not trying to make some like cancel culture is bad type of a, you know, that's none of that idiocy. I'm not like, I'm not weighing in on that in any type of way. But I do think that like the danger in that kind of thinking is being an average person who hasn't been called out for bad behavior and thinking, see, I am righteous. I am good. Sure. And that's like, I think we all need to be a lot more vigilant about our own characters and not in a way of like the fear of shame or the the inner shame of I'm bad and I know I'm going to get canceled, but more just like, I just better watch myself because it's easy to do the wrong thing. It's easy to choose the selfish or the lazy thing. Like all of us want to do that. You know what I mean? Like all of us, like sometimes just want to get away with it. You know what I mean? Whatever it is, stealing, lying, doesn't matter. You know, all of us have that tendency because we're all human, you know? And I think that a society that pretends that we're not all human is like, it's, it's worrisome. Like the angry mob kind of starts right there, you know? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I think, you know, with Ibogaine and all of these psychedelics were so kind of vilified and, you know, by the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, all this progress halted. I mean, do you think that these should be options for people who deal with addiction? They shouldn't have to necessarily go to Mexico, go through the expense and all the effort you went through if they're doing it in a therapeutic setting? Or what are your kind of thoughts on, you know, I guess addiction and you know, it's it's effectiveness, because obviously there's risk to it too, right? But like you said in the book, also using is incredibly risky. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a very useful tool for the right percentage of the population, which is probably a pretty low percentage. Like, I think it has to be like, yeah, you're probably going to die if you keep using like this. Like, those are the people that should be given like, you know, alternative therapies like this. And also, like, I know that psilocybin has shown some great results and in certain kinds of traumatic situations, even MDMA for like vets and stuff like that. You know, I think I think that stuff is incredibly powerful potential underutilized. And I think that like criminalizing them or making them just banned by the FDA or whatever, it just drives them underground. You know, it's that old thing. It's like you're not going to stop it like this. People is saving because there's some research that this stuff is saving people's lives like people are going to do it. They're going to do it and they're not going to get it right. You know what I mean? That's nothing new. But the thing that I do think is sort of strange and interesting about addiction is there's like a pretty long and fraught, complicated history of the things that the government has done for alternative medicines and stuff like that. And one of them, you know, there's sort of like a uh, there's a great history on Ibogaine, actually, on the doctor who, uh, dis- you know, discovered its its heroin addiction not curing, but maybe treating possibilities of heroin. He, you know, wrote to all the major pharmaceutical manufacturers and said, hey, I'm trying to get this cleared as a therapy. Can I sell it to you? And they were all like, oh, it works. That's amazing. How many years do you have to take it for? You know, he's like, you take it once. And they're all like, nope, we've already got some treatments. And the treatments are like, they last for years. I'm curious. Like, what's the reception been like about the book from your friends or family or people who are sort of characterized in the book? Like, whether they're fictionalized or it's representative, what have their reactions sort of been like overall? I mean, it's been pretty positive, I think, generally. Um, my parents love the book. They're in there. Liza loves the book. She's in there. And my various band members have seemed to like the book or at least been cool with it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't gotten any, like, 
blowback from anywhere yet. I also think like the characters are quite different in some ways than my actual yeah band members and stuff like that, you know. And it says it in the acknowledgments, but like all these people are not like their characters. You know, I had to re- I started out having to reduce them to like their most uh, easily manipulated character traits. And then after that, I almost felt like that was so insulting that I just started changing their personalities so that they, I'd almost rather them have a ridiculous trait that they don't have yeah. than a ridiculous trait that they do have. Sure. <laughs> so that they could see it and be like, really? Is this what I am to you? This one thing that I did once 10 years ago? You know what I mean? I wanted it to be a little more like, that's not really what you're like. You know what I mean? Like, but that's kind of like just what I needed the character to do there. But it's been pretty positive so far. Jeff, I think your teeth look great, by the way. I know that's a uh, big <laughs> theme in the book. I just chipped them again. I had no devotion in the bottom ones this time. Oh, really? Yeah. Microphone. Yeah, you got to be careful with that thing. It always gets you. <laughs> Get bit with a microphone, yeah. The last thing I want to talk about really quickly is maybe, you know, you kind of go back to the idea of trauma and the, the original trauma and, you know, Mark Epstein's written about like the trauma of everyday life and sort of these smaller things. Like, how do you think sort of trauma figures into the narrative in this book? Hmm. I think hmm, that's a really good question. There is this search for an origin story of where the pain comes from. You know what I mean? There's that's sort of like a recurring motif in the hallucinations. He's trying to drill down and find out how this happened. Like, how did I become a heroin addict? Like, what went wrong? What did I do? Like, What am I lying to myself about? What did I miss? And I really like this idea as a narrative choice to have it be like, maybe nothing. Right. (laughs) Maybe you didn't, maybe just being alive fucking sucks. Maybe it's really hard. And like, it's beautiful. Life is also very beautiful, but also like, it's incredibly painful. And like, just being a human on this earth, like, you know what I mean? Means that you're going to get hurt every day and it's going to fuck you up. Like from the time that you're a little kid, you're going to hurt every day. And it's not because like somebody did something terrible to you. It's just because like maybe somebody like that you needed to rely on for the day, you know, to be alive when you're a little kid, like wasn't up to the task and you survived it and nothing bad happened, but you just start fucking damaged by it. You know what I mean? And not in some way of like, it's so traumatic. It's just kind of like, yeah, like you don't even know what it is that's messing you up. And, you know, Parents and people like that, like authority figures, they're only human too, but like kids need them to be superhuman. You know what I mean? And that's like where a lot of unintentional harm comes in. It's just like, there's nothing wrong with that person. They just couldn't be the Superman that the kid needed that day or whatever. It's a fictional account, so I could have added some traumatic thing that happened that would have been so bad that like, that's where the pain comes in. And instead it's just kind of like, who knows where it came from? You know what I mean? Like nothing really happened. You're just fucking bummed and like even the therapist says that to the character like it doesn't matter you know what i mean like that's not how you fix like finding what it was that did it to you probably doesn't matter as much as finding out what you're going to do about it now you know what i mean like how are you going to live like how are you going to get through this like this pain that you're in and that really resonated with me because like i really spent some time trying to figure out what it was that fucked me up and instead what i found is that like well if you're of service to other people and you help other people then you're gonna get through it and you're gonna like feel like you have a reason for living and maybe whatever happened is like a blessing like whatever it is that happened to you is like some kind of a blessing because you can help other people that's just i just thought that was like a more interesting and less expected route to go for a fictional story you know yeah and more nuance and i think more you know is also really true to to the experience you know at one point you say like maybe you're trying to figure it out and you're like maybe i've been on this path my whole life yeah yeah It's funny, when I was a kid, and this isn't in the book or anything, I used to have this dream, 
I was like sitting with a bunch of friends and Kurt Cobain was like in the circle with us. And he was like, points to me and he's like, you, you better never do heroin. You will like it too much. And it's like, sometimes I think about that. I'm like, that's weird. It's on some level, did my brain go like, yeah, like all the artists that I love, like I love like Burroughs and Kurt Cobain and this guy, they're like all junkies. Like, you know what I mean? Better watch out because this shit is going to kill you. And my brain didn't listen. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Let's try it out. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast. And thanks to Jonah Bayer and Jeff Rickley for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the goodness at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.